Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, please give us wisdom and understanding as we look at the Bible text about the power of words. You have given us wonderful words about grace and love and forgiveness. Help us to be Christian believers who are quick to repeat these wonderful words to our brothers and sisters in Christ. For your glory and honour. Amen. There's a story uh, about a mother called Jo and uh, she tells the story about her uh, five-year-old daughter, uh, Barbara, and she says, uh, Barbara had disobeyed me and was sent to her room. After a few minutes, I went in to talk with her about what she had done. Teary-eyed, she said, or teary-eyed, she asked, why do we do wrong things, Mummy? And uh, Mum replied, sometimes the devil tells us to do something wrong and we listen to him. We need rather to listen to God. And the little Barbara answered, but God doesn't talk loud enough. <laughs> I've had that said to me and you may have had that said to you uh, where people say, but God's not speaking. I can't hear him. And yet God has spoken very loudly to us in his word. In fact, so loudly has God spoken to us that he's written it down for us so that any day we can get up and there it is, God's word. And, and it's just jumping off the page and speaking to us. And of course, the Holy Spirit himself takes the word and he makes it live in our heart. So God is speaking very loudly. And today, uh, in the text that uh, James just read for us, uh, from James, uh, the biblical James, uh, he's highlighting the tongue, the power of the tongue. Of course, what he's talking about is the power of our words. And what James does, he compares, in a sense, the evil that is possible that comes from our tongue, from our words, and he compares it to godly behaviour that comes through godly wisdom. Now, I've just said that God is a God of words. He's actually written his words down for us. But we also read how powerful God's words are. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And in Hebrews 11, we read, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. God's words are so incredibly powerful. Our words, not so much. We can't speak and command a galaxy to appear. We can't even speak to command one little planet or one moon to appear. We're nowhere near as powerful as God. But nonetheless, our words are incredibly powerful to each other. We have incredible power in our words to encourage, 
or we can tear down. We have the power to say to somebody, how are you? And after they say the polite good thanks, we can ask them, how are you really? If we really want to know. Because it's surprising how often we say to somebody, how are you? And we're polite, but just below the surface is this whole wealth of of, of, um, information that people just want to be able to share with us if we really care. I think we should be encouraged by this. Because if you've come in here today and you're feeling inconsequential here at church or just in your life, if you're just thinking, oh, I'm just a nothing, I'm not much, I don't have power and I don't have position, then know this, each one of us, we are incredibly powerful with our words and we can encourage others. We can build them up or we can tear them down. And that tells us something, that God can use us, each and every one of us. It doesn't matter at all what position we may hold. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. The fact is that we can so easily turn to a person next to us and we can build them up or we can tear them down. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And the encouragement today is not so much, even though James talks about the power of evil, uh, evil words, and we will look at that, but the encouragement today is for us to say, hey, no, let's rise up in the goodness of God and speak words of healing and words of blessing and words that are going to bring life to other people. But in the text, James first talks about teachers, so we'll have a brief look at that. Not many of you, this is verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This refers to teaching in the church. James isn't talking about teaching in a school or in other situations. He's talking about teaching in the church because church teachers have great influence and they will be held more accountable. And we might say, well, why have um, church teachers, why are they so important? It's because generally God uses teachers to speak to us. Now, we all know we've got the Bible um, in so many different versions and colours and um, devotional Bibles and so on, and we can all read the Bible ourselves, and we should, and we should grow from that But God also uses these strange people, you know, these pastors and people that stand at the front of church and they teach week after week. It's just God's way. That's that's the way that God has chosen, uh, along with, with his written word, he's chosen people to expound on that word and to teach upon his uh, word. And over the years, a senior pastor uh, or, or the teaching pastor may flavour a church. Um, I um, know some people very well, uh, and when you go into their home, into their kitchen, straight away you can smell curry. And that's because they're of Indian descent and they're always cooking with curry, and it's great. When you eat there, it's like eating at a restaurant. They are brilliant chefs. 
But the thing is uh, that, that because they're flavouring all their food with curry, after a while you can smell it. You can just smell it in the kitchen, even when they're not cooking. You can do the same when you're teaching. If you keep using the same flavour over the years, it will have some effect. And so a teacher might uh, major and, and influence the church on outreach. Or it might be on social issues. Or the church may really gravitate and grow in the area of the confession, the Westminster Confession, the catechism, systematic theology. Or a a teacher might major on love and grace and that becomes a real focus of the church. Or it might be on holy living. Or some teachers will emphasise the word and some will emphasise prayer. Now, obviously, the more we can emphasise all of those and have a good balance, the better it is. But it's just the way that teachers can, uh, if they really believe strongly in an area, can just uh, flavour a church in a certain way. And, And that's just normal. But what we need to do, we need to make sure that the teaching in church is always true to the word. We can't Uh, venture into erroneous teaching because a teacher can illuminate God's word or they can obscure it or they can twist it. I believe in a good situation in the Presbyterian Church at the moment in Australia, but it wasn't always this way. And some of you may not even know that, but before 1977, when there was uh, the, the Uniting Church came about, what we call union, where the Congregational Methodist and Presbyterian churches came together, before that, much of the Presbyterian Church was in real trouble. And I'm just going to read you uh, David Cook. He posted online uh, an article back in 2015. And David Cook has been the principal of SNBC in Sydney, and uh, he was the moderator general for four years of the Presbyterian Church. And during that time, he wrote this, and he's looking back to the past. There are now fewer in our denomination who remember the way the church was pre-1977. It's becoming dim for, for most of us, and some of us weren't even there. I began to teach Sunday school at Waverley Presbyterian in 1968. The curriculum consisted of situational ethics. There was no gospel being taught. Indeed, in the wider church, those who refused to use the imposed Sunday school material were hounded out of the church. Liberalism in the majority is always thoroughly intolerant. These were the days when our training institutions imposed a deadening liberalism by training clergy with no gospel to preach, no sacrifice, no substitutionary atonement, no bodily resurrection and no new life. I'm thankful that there were some notable exceptions, but they were in the minority. In his book, The Land of the Long Weekend, The late Ronald Conway says, formerly tough-minded Presbyterians capitulated rather mysteriously in the late 1950s to a view of ministry as a kind of spiritual psychotherapy. The world was converting the church rather than the church 
converting the world. That's a pretty horrific view, isn't it, of the Presbyterian church before union. And actually what I, I, I say this, and I think what saved the Presbyterian church in, in a way was that union happened and that many of the Presbyterians who, who held to Christ and all the truths that we hold here, uh, they continued on as the Presbyterian church. And I mentioned liberal theology. If you're not familiar with that, liberal theology is the Bible interpreted with science and modern-day thinking. The miracles of the Bible become just stories and preaching becomes about social issues and the gospel message is removed. So the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins the message of repentance that we have to confess our sins and turn from sin unto God and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus Christ rose again and that in him we can rise again to new life, all that is taken out. And friends, we know that the one core belief that we must always stick to and we must protect so strongly is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection. We can never turn from that. And and that message is always going to keep us grounded. So we must protect it with all that we can. We must protect that one message and always come back to our central focus. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In our life, it doesn't matter what's happening, what you're going through. We've always got to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is teaching today that we would look at and we would say it is erroneous. And and what was happening in the Presbyterian church back in the 50s and 60s is still happening in some churches today. So we have a social gospel where repentance and atonement is not preached. It's all about just being good to everybody. You know, it's just all moral type of stories and moral type of issues. But Christ and, and the cross and the resurrection is, is left out. We have the, pres- uh, sorry, the prosperity message where it seems God is about providing creature comforts if we believe hard enough. This teaching which says we include all kinds of behaviour. It doesn't really matter. We just include everything under the guise of of love, of God's love. You know, God loves everybody, so everything's acceptable. We need to guard our teaching because error can creep in slowly. That teaching that I just referred to, that... um, you know, God loves everybody, doesn't matter what they're doing, God just loves absolutely everybody. The problem with that, it focuses on God's love. And that's right, God does love everybody, but what about God's justice? What about the holiness of God, where God sets a standard and it's his standard and we are accountable to that standard? If you just grab a hold of one thing like God's love but you don't have the rest, then we come into error. If all we preach was just justice and judgment, then we miss out grace and love and we're going to miss out the whole message of salvation. We need to make sure 
that we try and keep the whole balance of Scripture, what sometimes we call the whole counsel of God. And we need each other in that. We can keep each other accountable and keep each other true to the teaching of God's word. I'm not pretending for one minute or saying that we're perfect or infallible, but but nonetheless, we need to hold always the message of Christ, the cross and the resurrection. Okay, verse 2. James says, we all stumble in many ways. Now, I think, I call that James's concession because I've been saying over the months as we've looked at James that he's pretty tough. He's very blunt. He just says, hey, this is the way that you live the Christian life. And at times it can come across and seem really hard. But look at what James is saying here. We all stumble in many ways. Oh, I find that comforting because I don't know about you, but I stumble in many ways. And it's great to hear James say that. And you see, he says we all stumble. Not one of us is perfect. And he even says not only do we all stumble, we all stumble in many ways. In other words, he's not saying that some of us stumble once or twice a year, but he's saying that we all stumble in many ways. And I think that's comforting for us because when we stumble, we should not get wiped out by that. We should not just be so overcome with guilt that there's no recovery. We should not become so discouraged or or, or just feeling that that we're complete uh, and total failures because, you see, God is in the restoration business. God knows that we are going to stumble, but God restores us. I visit some people out in the bush and uh, the whole yard is full of old car bodies. And uh, they've been there for years and some of them have got plants growing up through them and they're rusty and they're broken and beaten and battered. And, And I sort of think, well, they're of no good to anybody But the owner keeps getting offered all these really incredibly large prices to buy some of these cars so that the cars can be restored. You see, no matter how rusty or broken they might look, they are of value to people who can fix them up and make them look as good as new. No matter how rusty and broken we might feel, God wants to restore us. And in 1 John 1 we read, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, we should never think that we're going to be perfect, not in this lifetime. We should be honest and say, yes, we will sin. We're going to stumble in many ways. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a great message that is for us. If you've come in here today and you feel broken and and, and you feel uh, guilty and, and and you feel like a failure, then know God wants to forgive you. In Christ, he wants to restore you. Jesus came because we are broken. Jesus came 
because we are sinners, Jesus came for the unrighteous. That whole verse, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, we know it's not possible. We can't be perfect. We can't be without sin. And, and so we can't be perfect all the time in our speech. We are sometimes going to say things that sometimes afterwards we wish we had never said. But that's the truth of the matter. But nonetheless, the more that we can allow God to control our speech, the more rounded and, and mature we become as believers. Any of you who watch um, the, the tennis matches, uh, the professional tennis, will sometimes see some of the players, they'll just lose it. They'll smash their rackets and they'll get angry and they'll swear and tell off the chair umpire, tell off the crowd and so on. And, um, and, and, and it's horrible sometimes to watch. It can be a bit shocking. Sometimes, though, the antics even seem to us to be a little bit amusing. But no one wants a Christian to go on a rant. No one wants a Christian just to lose control with their tongue and, and just let it rip. And the more that we can grow in the Lord and control our speech, the more mature we become and the more useful we become to the Lord. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small star, uh, spark. The tongue can start a firestorm. Rumours, half-truths, grumblings, sarcastic remarks, hurtful things said in anger, all of these sparks have the potential to burn down acres of office morale. They all have the potential to burn down acres of family peace. They all have the potential to burn down acres of church unity. And James goes on in verse 6, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, James is really getting strong about the power of our tongue, in this case, for evil, for destruction. James declares the tongue's wickedness has its source in hell itself. The devil uses the tongue to divide people and pit them against one another. And, and let's face it, he even divided Adam and Eve from God through the power of his deceptive words. If we embark on a trajectory with the devil and speak hateful words, destruction spreads quickly like a wildfire and no one can stop the results once they are spoken. So we dare not be careless with what we say. 
thinking that, oh, it's okay, we can apologise later. Because even if we do, the scars may remain. A few words spoken in anger can destroy a relationship that took years to build. Before we speak, remember, we must remember that words are like fire and we may not be able to reverse the damage that our words do if they're ungodly. Uh, I lived in a country town for a couple of years and right next to us there was a, a couple, an older couple, and uh, backing on to him, so his back fence was the back fence with his brother who fronted onto the, the next road. Those two brothers, even though the yards joined, had not spoken in the last 10 years. And I asked this, uh, this neighbour of ours, I said, oh, why did why has that happened? And he said, oh, we had an argument 10 years ago and we just said things and got angry you know, and said horrible things to each other. He said, it's really stupid, you know, now I think about it. But those words of anger have stopped those brothers talking for 10 years. That's the power of angry words. Verse 7, James goes on, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And the question there is, wow, if no human being can tame the tongue, why bother trying? But the answer is that even though we may not achieve perfect control of our tongues, the Holy Spirit will help us learn self-control. We need to remember that we are not fighting the tongue's fire in our own strength. The Holy Spirit will give us increasing power to control what we say. And James goes on in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our contradictory speech sometimes puzzles us. At times our words are pleasing and right to God and sometimes our words are violent and destructive. Sometimes we might be here at church and say wonderful things to God. We might praise God and then this afternoon we go out and say horrible things to, to our family member or, or one of our friends and and sometimes it's contradictory, it's really weird how as believers sometimes we, we can praise God on the one hand and yet be so horrible on the other. But we need not be despair because as I was just saying, the longer God works to change us on the inside, the more self-control we have with our words. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 6, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things 
out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So friends, what do we do about this restless thing called the tongue? What do we do about our words? The best thing we can do is more and more and more dwell with God. Dwell in his word. Pray. Be together with each other and encourage each other and grow in the Lord. And as we do that, this strange thing happens. God changes us and we grow more and more to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though James is warning us of the destruction of the tongue, we can be encouraged because God is at work to change our speech to become words of blessing. And now he goes on and talks a little bit about godly wisdom and how our behaviour can actually become good in the Lord. In verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, what are some ways we can show this good life born out of humility and wisdom? Well, Aubrey, in his commentary on James, He writes that the US President, Abraham Lincoln, is reported to have said, I would rather remain silent and be thought a fool than speak up and remove all doubt. And Proverbs 17 says something similar. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. You see, sometimes it is better in humility and wisdom to be silent or to say very little. But when we do speak, let our words be wise and encouraging. Examples of an untamed tongue include gossiping, putting others down, bragging, manipulating, false teaching, exaggerating, complaining, flattering and lying. But God's speech is loving, kind, considerate, gracious, truthful. It speaks the truth of God's word. When challenge is necessary, it is brought with firmness in love. It is measured. Sometimes we see things happening with a brother or sister and we think, wow, they need some help. They need some correction. But the godly ways to pray about it and to consider, and if we bring correction, that we do so maybe firmly, but we do so in love to build up. If we just go and just get stuck into a person and tear strips off them, we're likely to do more damage and to push them further away from the Lord. Godly wisdom. Verse 14, but if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are inspired by the devil. Seeking God's wisdom delivers us from the need to compare ourselves to others and to want what they have. In other words, our lives should not be dominated by jealousy of others and by selfish ambition. Our only path 
is to be that which God wants us to be. That's the only thing we have to find in life. What does God want us to be? My role at the moment, uh, role, job, ministry, whatever you want to call it, the way I'll spend some of my time, uh, is that I'm with the Presbyterian Inland Mission as a patrol padre, which some of you know. And I believe that at the moment that is where God wants me to be. But a few people have been disparaging about the role and they want me to be more ambitious. So out in the bush, um, I, I visit a Christian family and this dad, the Christian dad, told his children, when I wasn't around, of course, he said, on oh, my role is something you do if you can't get another job. <laughs> and the children told me, bless little children, they're so honest, the dad would be horrified if he knew. <laughs> a, a pastor said to me, um, he said, I would find the driving that you do an utter waste of time. And the caption of Presbyterian Land Mission is worth driving for because, yeah, we do spend a lot of time in the car but then we have really good ministry as well at the end of it. Um, when I became interim moderator here of Cornerstone back in October last year, um, somehow through the grapevine, within I think it was half a day, uh, someone in another part of the state, a pastor, uh, found out, heard about it, and he sent me congratulations saying, it's really great that you're back in ministry again. Now, he knows what I do. But obviously, helping people in the bush and witnessing the people in the bush doesn't count. That's not ministry. <laughs> I had to disappoint him and say, sorry, I'm only doing it temporarily. He said, oh, oh, okay, I better try and get that message right, he thought. He would have been so disappointed that I was back out of ministry again. <laughs> you see, some people view what I do as not much, but if I was pastor of the church again, that would be much more prestigious and much more important and, and, and much more full of honour. But the question is, what should I do? What do you think James is saying here? Should I be uh, envious of other people in a more important role? Should I be selfishly ambitious and pursue a pastoral position with more honour and prestige? Or should I do that to which I believe God has called me to do? I think we know the answer to that. And, and, and don't be worried about me, about what people have said. My identity is in Christ. It's not in my position. And you see, that's where James wants us all to be at. He wants our identity to be in Christ. Our worth is in Christ, not our position. Um, we shouldn't be selfish for position. If God's calling you to a high position, do it in obedience. If he's calling you to a low position, do that in obedience. But we should not be about our selfish ambition and our selfish desire. Because James goes on in verse 16 and says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere 
Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Envy and selfish ambition lead to disorder, but godly wisdom leads to peace and goodness. Are we tempted to escalate the conflict? Are we tempted to pass on the gossip? Are we tempted to fan the fires of discord? Years ago, I was in a church in a town and it just seemed like it was going crazy. There was gossip coming out of different churches. There was just all this ungodly kind of speech. It seemed to filter through the churches and people were grabbing it and running with it. And, And it seemed really destructive. It's very easy to get caught up in that when there's gossip going on like that and and, and people are talking. It's easy to get caught up and just to to help that to to move along, to to fan the fires of discord. But some of my brothers and myself, we made this decision before the Lord that we would stop doing it, that we would stop gossiping. If it wasn't our business, we were not going to pass it on. And friends, I can tell you, This proactive decision, it actually changed my life. It changed my behaviour. In a sense, it set me free. And from that time on, I just lost interest in what was happening in the other churches. I mean that in a good way, in in that I, I wasn't concerned anymore about the other things that were going wrong or the gossip that was going on. I became really boring. People would say to me, hey, what's happening? Have you heard what's happening? I was like, oh, I haven't got a clue. I really didn't know anymore. But it set me free. It changed me. It was such a blessing to make that decision before the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, is there anything that you want us to change? Are there any behaviours that you want us to change? Do we need to change our words, perhaps to our wives or our husbands? Do we need to change the words we speak to our parents or the words that we speak to our children? Lord, do we need to change how we speak and behave to our brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone? Or do we need to speak differently to the people in our workplace or our school or or uni or our neighbourhood or the sporting club we belong to or any club that we belong to? Lord, is there anything that we need to change? Please help us, Lord, to be people of positive words, heavenly words, guided by the Holy Spirit, out of a loving relationship with Jesus. As you have healed us in Christ, may we speak healing words to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask the elders if they could come out, please, as we come around the Lord's table. I've been assured that today we've got a soft loaf. (laughs) If you were here last time.
Shortly, the elders are going to distribute the emblems for us, the bread and the cups for us, and uh, they're all gluten-free. And uh, if you hold the bread and the cup till the end, and then we'll partake together as a family together. That's so important. We are a family uh, together in the Lord. And it's in Christ that the communion table is the table of our Lord Jesus. And on behalf of the session of this congregation, I invite those who love the Lord Jesus Christ to partake. You might be from Cornerstone, you might be visiting from another church. The table is open for you. It's not just a church thing with a church name upon it. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his table. It might be today that you feel, oh, I'm not just there yet. I'm still not sure about Jesus, then by all means feel free to let the emblems pass you by. It might be for for some other reason you don't want to participate today. Don't feel bad about that. Let the emblems pass by, but make it a time of contemplation or perhaps a time of prayer and share with somebody later on so that we can share with you. Maybe that you might be in need of help or encouragement. Please allow us to, to help and encourage today. Hear the gracious words of the Lord Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. James was saying earlier, our James, not the Bible James, that we are living in challenging times. And it might be that you've come in here today and maybe you're feeling a bit battered and bruised from what you've been going through in the week. Maybe you come in and you're a bit weary. Maybe you're coming in, you're carrying some guilt, you've got problems going on and it all might seem a bit of a turmoil. Then how appropriate these words are to come to Jesus, who will give us that spiritual rest. You know, participate today. Focus again on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot happening. I've had a week where I feel beaten and bruised and battered. But the the one thing that we always must do, we must come back to Jesus. He's always the answer. We must come back to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection Because in him we are lifted, in him we have spiritual life, in him we are forgiven, in him and in him alone we find rest. And that's what God is offering us today as we participate together. There's no magical power in the bread and the cup, but there is power in it as we put our faith in in God and the Holy Spirit can work in our lives. There is incredible power in that. Let's pray. Almighty God, you love the world so much that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We thank you for Jesus' humanity, for his perfect life on earth, for his sufferings and death upon the cross, for his glorious resurrection from the dead, for his ascension to your right hand 
where he lives to plead our cause. For the promise of his coming again and for his gift of the Holy Spirit. With thankful hearts we join together as this local body of Christ to partake of this precious supper in obedience to the Lord's command. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.